Good morning. This is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. My guest today is Tom Mussel, the naturalist, filmmaker, and author. Those labels are accurate for sure, but Mussel will forever be primarily identified by a 2015 incident when she was kayaking with a friend in Northern California and a humpback whale breached, landing on top of the pair. Somehow they were both uninjured, though as one might expect, this became a transformative experience for Mussel. It prompted him to investigate several facets of the encounter, making a documentary The Whale Detective, in which he sought to identify the whale and answer other questions about the incident. Muscle and I discussed that film, in fact, in the January 2020 Talking Animals interview. Muscle's fascination with whales has hardly subsided. Indeed, it propelled him into exploring the history and newest developments in whale science and animal communication presented in his recently published book, How to Speak Whale, A Voyage into the Future of Animal Communication. The exploration he undertakes in How to Speak Well traverses a wealth of topics, not to mention a few centuries moving from a look at 17th century inventors to present-day examination of the latest relevant developments in artificial intelligence. We'll hear about this book, some of its findings, the kayak incident, of course, and more when I speak with Tom Mussel in a few moments here on Talking Animals on WMNF. A programming note, on next week's show, my guest will be Glenn Hatchell, reprising Ask the Trainer, in which listeners are invited to call in with questions from their dogs or cats, behavior, or training. Glenn, a former W. WMNF programmer is the Behavior and Enrichment Manager at the Humane Society of Tampa Bay and an accomplished dog trainer and behavior expert. So you're welcome to start thinking about your questions for Glenn now. Later in today's program, meanwhile, I'll speak with Doug Keeling, who earlier this month was named the 2023 Pet Sitter of the Year by Pet Sitters International, considered the world's largest educational association for professional pet sitting and dog walking business owners. Keeling owns Bad to the Bone Pet Care in Jacksonville, Florida. I'll ask him about his company, about this honor. And it's indeed 2023 Pet Sitter of the Year because the organization names the recipient near the end of the year, and then the winner serves as the face of the professional pet sitting industry throughout the coming year. We'll hear more about this later in today's program. Right now, though, let's discuss whales, kayaks, and whales, animals, communication, and more with Tom. With a reminder that I invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing dj at wmnf.org, or texting 813-433-0885. This is Tom Mustel back on Talking Animals on WMNF. Good morning, Tom. Uh, good morning. It's lovely to actually, be back. Right. Actually, it's not morning where you are, I should point out, right? It's uh, <laughs> it, the sun has just set in London. Yeah, it's dark and cold. Right. Okay. So we're speaking to you by Zoom, and uh, appreciate you making uh, making the time to uh, join us today. So congratulations on the book, which I'm really looking forward to discussing. But an additional congrats, meanwhile, for the cover, which is really inventive and striking. Really quite taking with the cover. So it's uh, it's really great as an as an additional thing. So I want to start out here with something you've probably never ever discussed. It involves you, a kayak, and a whale. So. Uh, <laughs> All kidding aside, the whale incident is pivotal, of course. Uh, indeed, we discussed it on this very show in the context of that great documentary made exploring it, The Whale Detective. But now, with the perspective of about seven years having passed at this point, I'm hoping you can recount the whale kayak episode for today's audience while framing this story and describing kind of how it changed you personally and professionally. So I was uh, in Monterey Bay, California, and I was in a kayak tour uh, with my friend Charlotte. We were in a two-person kayak. We were going out to go whale watching, uh, and a humpback whale uh, breached uh, onto us as we were paddling back to the harbor, and it crashed into our kayak and dragged us underwater, but we were totally unharmed and uh, the incident was captured by a, a whale watcher on their cell phone and they uploaded it to YouTube and it went viral um, and really it I mean it, it transformed my life in many ways I mean the most immediate one being that I had a newfound lust for life because I'd come so close to not being alive um, and I had it it was such a powerful experience to be that 
close to such a large animal and the sort of explosion of its of its kind of splendid uh, jump. Um, but then uh, there were two real things that stayed with me. Like the first was that uh, normally, like a few years ago, you wouldn't have been able to follow and find out anything more about that. You know, you have an interaction with a large wild animal, especially at sea. That you know that you've just got a story, and that's as far as it goes. But because somebody had filmed it. Um, and it had been uploaded to the internet, loads of people could see it and analyze it. And last time I was with you, I was talking about the film I made about that, where I essentially went back to Monterey Bay to meet lots of different scientists and whale watchers and people who disentangle whales when they're caught in nets and people who film them underwater to get lots of different perspectives onto whales and to see what they thought was going on in that interaction. Um, and it gave me an opportunity to experiment with new modes of filmmaking and storytelling because I was in the middle of that story. Um, yeah, it was, was kind of, it was kind of like yeah, sorry. a... No, sorry. I was just going to say it was kind of like a police procedural in many ways, right? <laughs> because you, were, you really were investigating this thing that you were, of course, in the midst of. and uh, But you did consult with all kinds of experts and... and um, try to sort of reconstruct what happened because people who were whale experts told you right off the bat that the whale, in their view at least, clearly tried to avoid you and your friend once the whale had breached. So right away, that's mm -hmm. super intriguing because if that's the case, why and how was that the case? And that was among the many mm -hmm. questions that you addressed in the film. Absolutely. I felt like uh, whales, when they attack uh, like and in defense or when they attack uh, to predate, they... They don't breach onto the things that threaten them. When humpback whales are being attacked by killer whales, they defend themselves using their their fins, their their, their tail and their pectoral fins on their side, like and they kind of karate chop. Um, they don't jump onto threats and they don't jump onto things to play with them. Uh, and the scientists who analysed frame by frame the video actually showed how, as the whale was in midair, it was executing one jump and then it saw us and then it turned away and that. That's why we were alive, because it saw us and it avoided hitting us, um, which is gratifying. Yeah. Uh, but also it's fascinating because <laughs> sure. like e even now, you know, they, uh, I think it's something like 30 or 40 grenades. They think it's the energy equivalent of when a humpback whale does that. And nobody knows why they do it, why whales breach. There are lots of theories, but still it's, it's as up in the air as the whales are, where, what they're actually doing. And the other element of that that's just so stunning is that we're talking about a humpback whale, no small creature, so that it could execute sort of a, almost like a gymnastic maneuver in midair, having realized that you guys were below, and that if he didn't do that, he would land on you, and he probably knew that would be horrible. So, I mean, it's incredible, that it, the, not just the recognition, but the agility that a, a gigantic humpback whale could display mm. in midair. I mean, it just adds so many other elements to already a stunning story. And I think um, when, when you see footage of these whales underwater, I've had the privilege of filming them uh, underwater, and I've seen footage from the backs of the whales. I think we'd underestimated how agile and graceful they are. They can, like, turn on a dime. They're enormously aware of where their body is in respect to the things around their bodies. They often swim very close to each other or just brushing fins. And because they've got this, these really huge kind of arms, they can use them as paddles to quickly change their direction. So, and in midair, yeah, they, they can flex their spine and twirl and pirouette, um, which I'm very grateful for. Yeah. Obviously. Yeah. But even that, I mean, what they can do in the water is, is sort of one thing just because that's where they normally are. And Their they, element. Yeah. Yeah. So to do something like what, what happened in, in your case in midair is still, I think, just uh, enormously amazing. So hmm. I don't think I could avoid a whale 
as gracefully in water as it avoided me in the air. <laughs> right, exactly. So, um, so now uh, the book, let's talk a little bit about the book. So the book involves a much broader scope than the kind of the investigation that you launched to make the film about the incident, but it was certainly, I, I think, safe to say, spurred at least partly by the kayak incident, just because once having had that experience, it's probably hard to think of much else uh, peri- <laughs> periodically, right? Yes, and I think also so many other people kept telling me new things about the experience. But the the book really came out of a discovery that I made right at the end of the film that I didn't include in the film because I didn't really understand it, which is uh, we managed, uh, we one of the scientists we spoke to, they identified the whale that leapt onto us. Um, and uh, they fed this identification into their databases and they linked it up to other sightings of this whale and they were able to tell us who it was where it was born who its mother was uh how old it was uh, and then we've been following it every time it's been spotted because it gets automatically uh, identified and then we get emails telling us that this whale has arrived in colombia or, or off the coast of mexico or back in uh the waters of california so and even now oh, all yeah. these years later uh, that's still happening or the, the last time I saw it, it popped up was about 18 months ago, but that's okay. pretty regular. This is quite a, a whale that doesn't come in close to people very often. So even though it's about, I guess if it was, it's about 14 years old now. Okay. Um, there it would, uh, it, I think it's only had 20 odd sightings in its lifetime and they tend to cluster every few years. So it doesn't necessarily indicate anything's happened to the whale. Right. It, it's just, some whales stick close to shore and come close to boats. And also it's got a slightly boring looking tail. I so don't want to be mean to the whale. <laughs> so it doesn't tend to get as quickly identified as some of the more distinctive whales. So, um, so only if the whale were identified and spotted, that's the only circumstance in which you would receive one of those email alerts. Yes, but okay. the thing that's been absolutely game changing and really fascinated me was that until the whale breached onto us, these identifications were carried out by scientists and passionate uh, sort of lay people and citizen scientists. Yeah. But the year, the two, when I went to make the documentary, they just switched to using uh, artificial intelligence to recognize the, uh, the so w- when whale watchers would take photographs or scientists of the whale's tails when the whale goes underwater, they would compare the, what those tails look like because each one is unique to the whale. But they switched to using AI to do that. And suddenly they were able to identify thousands and thousands more whales uh, because it takes so little time for the AI to do it. And it's better than people. They could feed in hundreds of thousands of sightings from all over the world. And the organization that did this has now managed to identify, which back when I made the film, this would have been a pipe dream. But now they've identified almost every single Pacific humpback whale. And not only that, they are branching out to other whales, identifying them with other parts of their bodies, other oceans. And they're mapping, for instance, whales returning to parts of Antarctica, the waters there where they were wiped out, or linking sightings from the 1970s in Alaska to modern sightings, or whales that popped up in Japan to ones in Russia. So none of this would have been possible without the use of machines to recognize patterns and help us can reconstruct the lives of these animals. Yeah, it's AI figures prominently into to the book and some of the stuff you're trying to sort through in terms of communication and, and how the language of, of whales could eventually maybe become something overlapping our language. And that's a lot of AI involved in that thing, which we'll get into in a moment or two. But, um, uh, mm-hmm. but um, 
Because in fact, your whale misadventure, again, a transformative experience, really seems to have served as a jumping off point for an investigation of all sorts. This time, I mean, the, the film was really focused on what happened when a whale breached in, in almost anatomy and why, and, and a lot of questions were answered there. But this seems like you're delving into all sorts of branches of science as well as other fields. And at some time, you call, I guess the whale was called prime suspect. I guess that may have changed after eventually. I, I- yeah, Duncan, I, you know, I feel I should change it. I feel really bad because when we were doing the film, we really didn't believe that we'd ever find find the whale. We thought it was such a sort of needle in the haystack thing. And so we used this idea of the kind of, you know, the detective trying to piece together as much as they can about this near-death experience. But learning that the whale hadn't been trying to attack us, I feel it was very unfair of us to give it the nickname Prime Suspect. Not that it knows about it, but uh, right. looking back, I, I wish I'd made, I'd called it something different, like Brief and counter um but um but absolutely as you say that really the the book goes into i mean my background is i was trained as a biologist a conservation biologist and that's why i worked in before i made wildlife documentaries which was which are mainly about other biologists and i was so blown away by how much my one experience uh what how much i could learn about that with help from machines that I really spent the next few years going to conferences and meeting other scientists to find out how machines were changing what we could discover about nature. And the end place that led me to was machines that were being used to record and decode the communications of other species, uh, which I, I think is the most exciting part of it. But it's just one element of how the study of biology is being revolutionized with help from machines. For sure. Well, we'll get into that in just a moment. I just want to note that their uh, email just popped in and said, William here, recent WNF supporter from Lutz. My son-in-law was kayaking alone in Puget Sound in Washington State when he was 10 or 12 years old. This was back in the 70s when an orca surfaced a few feet away from him. It's still one of the highlights of his life. So he didn't have mm. kind, of, kind of the uh, the death-defying element that you did, but still just <laughs> had that kind of proximity to an orca in this case or a humpback in your case mm. is is obviously just thrilling especially if you're sitting in a kayak when you're just alone among really kind of just you and the water and and then in this case a whale of one kind or another i think i think i'd trade my near-death experience for that to be honest i don't recommend what happened to me um well that's interesting because a question i sort of had as i was going through the book is and, and again because so much has happened or you pursued so much kind of in the wake of this is do you feel almost like a weird form of gratitude uh, for what the whale did and, and especially what the whale didn't do. But I mean, in other words, like this incident, while harrowing, I'm sure at the time and, and probably periodically you would play it in your head and think, oh my God, if he hadn't maneuvered, we'd be long gone by now. But do you feel some sort of form of gratitude indeed because of what, what that spawned and, in, in, you know, what that spurred in you professionally and, and personally, uh, since, since that incident? I, I, you know, I really do. I, uh, since we last spoke, I, uh, I've been fortunate enough. My wife gave birth to a, a daughter, Stella, two years ago. Congratulations. And thank you. Yeah, and I, having as a father reflected back on that, I, uh, it sort of wrenches me the idea that, that she wouldn't have happened. Um, and I think when I say I would trade my experience, I really mean I, w- I would trade rolling the dice because I think we were so absurdly lucky to survive that. Um, but I am really grateful for that. My editor, Sabrina, who I make films with, she described the the, way, the state I was in when I came back from California. She said that I just seemed 
fully open and full of the joys of the universe. And um, I, you know, I was just kind of bowling along, making wildlife films. Uh, and I kind of thought my life was, I could see where it was going. Um, but because uh, I, I was sort of, well, I was given this new lust for life and I was thrown into this wonderful community of whale people because so many people have approached me with their own stories and many of them are much more exciting than my own. And because of the interest in my story, that as a, as a, as a creative person, as a director, allowed me to really craft a film that was a bit different um, and from that, uh, at, at, like, write a book. And I have absolutely loved the process of writing and the opportunity of researching this. And I don't think many people would be interested in my book if I hadn't had this experience. But because of it, uh, I'm able to bring the things I've discovered off the back of that to people and to live this really like a life where I can kind of follow my curiosity and try and relate where that leads. And, and I, uh, if that, if if we'd have been two seconds in either direction on that kayak that day, none of this would have panned out for me and my life would have been so different. Yeah. And did I understand you to say that uh, you've met a number of people that had whale experiences, some more exciting than your own? Is that actually Absolutely. what you said? Okay, who, yes. who had a, a, a whale experience more exciting than your own than having the whale breach land on ah. you? And uh, I mean, how do, you, how do you top that exactly? Oh, I mean, there's a kayaker who a whale in actually just really close to where it happened to us a whale was lunge feeding where it comes to the surface and opens its mouth its mouth and gulps water in and the kayaker was engulfed in the mouth of the whale wow. um and there was a diver who that happened to i met a man who uh witnessed a whale giving birth a sperm whale and swam with the newborn baby afterwards i met a um i met a man who uh Oh, no, I met a woman who, when she was pregnant, went swimming. This was with a, a, a bottlenose dolphin, a dolphin uh, that, that swam around her and, the, and it swam all around her and it paid her loads of attention, and a wild dolphin, and it paid no attention to the humans. And uh, afterwards, she said, Why, what, what's, what's up with that dolphin? And they said, oh, that dolphin's pregnant. But she didn't know she was pregnant. She only found out about two weeks later. But the dolphin was like scanning her belly and the idea that it could somehow sense the... The, the the infant human wow. inside her womb. I mean, I met a man who a uh, humpback whale was caught in the net and it came over to him and allowed him to climb all over its body and with his knife digging into its flesh, it restrained itself from wincing because it would have smashed him to bits as he, over the course of hours, cut like loads and loads of loose fishing gear that it had got caught up in, you know, cutting into its flesh. But the whale just came back to him to let him do this. And after it did this, it danced with him underwater and breached many times. I mean, yeah. there's so many stories like these. Yeah, the whale um, obviously knew. I just have to kind of grin and bear the, the knife going into my yes. flesh because this person is actually helping me and freeing me from yes, the net. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. What other explanation is there for that if yeah. you're you know, in that situation, yeah. you know, that it, 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 we get told not to anthropomorphize, not to project our own ways of thinking and being onto other animals. But I feel that's like a, sometimes a very stifling impulse to actually taking in what's going on. Yeah, well, that's been a raging argument on this show for many, many years. Like, you know, <laughs> the anti-anthropomorphizing versus the pro. And some of the people who are scientists at one point who are very opposed to it, who over time, because of things like what we're talking about and, and others, have kind of shifted their position and uh, aren't quite as school marmish as well, they once were. I totally, uh, I mean, yeah. I... 
I don't know if you found this, but I find that many scientists I speak to in public avoid anthropomorphism, but in private, like they they talk in, I wouldn't say anthropomorphic terms, but they extend human-like capacities in some variety to the animals that they study or that they've experienced. But they have a, they are concerned about being dismissed if they sound too anthropomorphic. Mm. Can I can I share with you like a pet hypothesis of mine that might be rubbish? Sure. But I've sort of been yeah. okay. So anthrop like the tendency to anthropomorphize, you probably find it in lots of different human cultures. I find it's like a, a kind of almost universal impulse to, and you see this in our folk stories in many different cultures and traditions, to assume that other species think and feel in in relative ways that we can that we could relate to um but what i wonder is when you find a trait that's widely distributed often from an evolutionary point of view you might assume that that behavioral trait carries a fitness function i.e anthropomorphizing might be quite useful for human beings and i think if you see that we're anthropomorphizing everywhere and 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 consider that we have our evolutionary pathway has involved us needing to anticipate what other species might do and why, then I think it might be quite useful to anthropomorphize. And even though the mechanisms that we assume within the what the life, the brains of other animals and their lives might not be correct, I think if it has predictive power, if you think, is that wolf going to bite me or share that dead caribou with me? You know, is this like, um, you know, are those crows circling over there because there's something that I can go and eat? You know, is this snake gonna gonna lunge or will it let me pass? It I think often we, we reach for anthropomorphism to try and understand the motivations of other species. And often it seems like that it was has worked out pretty well for us because it helps us to predict what other animals might do. So that's my pet theory. It might be yeah. nonsense, but I but I wonder if our our last couple of industrialized centuries have kind of closed us off, almost like it's a sense that we have. Like one of our senses is to sense the 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 behaviors of other species but we've so ridiculed humans who've considered that we might be animals like them that we've kind of snubbed this and cut off this sense yeah no i that's a really interesting your pet hypothesis your pet theory i think it's super interesting just because again spoken to so many people scientists or and others on this show over the years and there is a real divide but to me, the divide has been narrowing, at least maybe it's just randomly who I'm speaking with. But I, I think there's been people who are very serious scientists, maybe the kind that might say one thing out loud and maybe would over coffee privately say something else. But mm. but it has shifted, it seems to me, where people who once may have been very dismissive of the idea of, of any kind of anthropomorphism are at least more open to it and some seem to even be embracing it, perhaps for the very reasons you outlined in your in your pet theory. So. Oh, I'm glad you think so. I think maybe we need to just ditch the term, you know, because right. it, I think the term anthropomorphism, it speaks to this weird way that we have of measuring other animals by human ways. Like anthro is human, right? That's the anthro and anthropomorphism. Yeah. And like, uh, so, I, you know, for a long time, you know, we've been measuring intelligence relative to humans like if an animal can do stuff we can do we think it's clever or uh, but now it's it, like our ideas of concepts of intelligence are changing and rather than having humans at the top of the intelligence tree and all other animals either falling short of what we can do in some way or other and that and therefore finding their position it's changing to a, a, like a real tree of intelligence with loads of different forms of problem solving and not all of them at all overlapping with the things that we can do um and so maybe we should call it uh other other animaling rather than anthropomorphizing 
Yeah, how about something a little less <laughs> arrogant, maybe? That would, that would be a good place to yeah. start. But, uh, so, um, yeah, a gen- I'd, I'd say like a gentler and more curious approach rather than either either being it being one thing or the other. We're so like binary in our approach to it. Like right. either you're a kind of fluffy animal lover who's a bit soft in the head and uh, or you're like a hard-nosed determinist who thinks they're all machines. And well, like there's clearly like neither's right. I'll like, raise my hand for soft in the head just, just generally. <laughs> but, uh, let's take, I'd rather let's, be on that side of history. As all right, well, well let, let's say, take a like, call. Let's uh, see about someone else getting involved in the conversation. Hi, you're on Talking Animals with Tom Mustel. Hi, yes. Um, I was just watching a documentary on uh, the Pearl Harbor Memorial. I okay. don't know if you've ever seen that. Okay. I, ha- I, haven't, I haven't seen the memorial, no. Okay. Well, um... They showed where some of the survivors chose to uh, be taken out into Pearl Harbor and their uh, urns their, with their ashes be placed on board of the Arizona, which is, you know, sunken underwater and there's a memorial in mm-hmm. front of it or on top of it. Mm-hmm. And then afterwards, wow. after they show, you know, this, this really remarkable, the remarkable steps that they go through in order to honor these people, they show oil that's still leaking out of the hull of that ship that comes up and floats across the top of the water. And they said that the shipmates look at that as if it were the blood of the people that died on board that ship. And then further to say that it doesn't affect the wildlife. They showed pictures of uh, some some species of fish that are down there and, um, you know, things that are growing on the hull of the ship. I was wondering, is that... Is that true, or is the oil harmful? So the oil leaking, still leaking from the ship you're quite asking about, and what, what the impact that has on wildlife in the water? Yeah, I mean, does it have a major impact on the wildlife? I mean, is it to the point where wouldn't it be better to take the ship out of the water and, you know, maybe take a portion, a portion where they're putting the people underwater, you know, maybe cut that part loose and put it inside one of those giant aquariums that you watch on TV where they make these big, huge aquariums and stuff and, you know, still do that, you know, make a memorial that's more like a museum piece rather than, you know, if, if it's being really detrimental. I just, I thought that possibly... At one time, there might have been giant lobsters and that it was a great fishing hole for Hawaii, you know, until Pearl Harbor. And now you have a lot of debris and oil and all of that stuff. Maybe it would be better better served or the, the memory of those sailors who died there. Maybe their memories would be better served if we started, you know, to clean that area up a little bit better. Okay, I appreciate your call. I'm going to allow Tom to answer and then we're going to move back because we are kind of more otherwise focusing on whales and animal communication and other things. But Tom, you're welcome to respond in any way you'd like and then we'll get back to our uh, conversation here. Well, well, I thank you for the question because I think it's, it sort of speaks to one of the themes that I'm really fascinated, which is like when the worlds of humans and animals overlap and the beliefs and emotional ties we have to things and the accidental ways that we can harm other species. Like so many of the ways that we harm whales and dolphins, for instance, are kind of accidents but they're where they get caught in our debris we run them over with boats without realizing they're there we make loads of noises that we could silence um i'm not particularly familiar with the memorial and the ecological impact i'd say that there are some species mainly like like microscopic species that can uh benefit like feed off oil but in general when oil spills in places where there isn't normally oil it does really have quite negative effects on the environment and it can build up in the environment for instance it can reduce the ability of seabirds to um keep their feathers from being 
get waterlogged and it can build up in the food chain and poison animals. But I would also really recognize the perspective of the uh, the sailors on, on that, that ship uh, who, you know, it's a war grave and they went through an extremely traumatic experience and that's where their friends are and now they're where they're choosing to be returned to. So I feel that if it was to be addressed, perhaps the most sensitive way of doing it would be to take the surviving veterans there and to allow them to uh, take part in that decision-making process about how the environment uh, is protected uh, and allowed to flourish again, whilst also not disturbing the grave of their fallen companions and where they'd like to be placed themselves. Well said. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Tom. So this is Talking Animals on WNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. My guest is Tom Mustel, the filmmaker and author, most recently of How to Speak Whale, A Voyage into the Future of Animal Communication, the new book and a documentary film he made before that, which I had about earlier in the show, are products of the uh, transformative experience he had it while kayaking with a friend, having a humpback whale preach and land on them. If you have a question for Tom or would like to offer a comment, please call 813-239-9663, email dj at wmnf.org, or text 4813-433-0885. So, Tom, as you might imagine, a guy with a show called Talking Animals is enormously interested in animal <laughs> communication. So tell me what struck you most about the investigation you embarked on, which became really the core of the of the new book. Was it something? Something historical, and we are going to get, we're going to swing back into the AI thing for in a moment, and that maybe that's your answer. But you covered so much ground, and you were in and out of so many different fields, science and other branches of science. Uh, what if you had to pinpoint one thing that's like, wow, I didn't think this journey would lead me here? What would that be? I think the main thing was that the the book started with my friend Joy Breidenberg. Like after the whale jumped on me, she and I said like, why did it breach onto me? And she said, you can't just ask a whale. I thought that would be like a really fun investigation to go on as a way of exploring why we haven't been able to talk to animals. Yeah. But in the process of writing the book, I've gone from exploring all of those things and the science has overtaken me. So the things that were speculative when I started now there's expeditions going out to try to use these new techniques to talk to animals. So, and and I've gone from thinking it's a fun and interesting thing that could be an amazing conservation tool to now being concerned that if people don't take these this seriously, that we will be, uh, like, that we might make mistakes in how we talk to animals. Because I think that... Um, the general public should be involved in these decisions and aware of these decisions, like in the same way that a lot of people didn't believe that you could clone a person. And then suddenly genetic engineering made that possible. And we got together and decided that that was not that was a line we weren't going to cross. And we decided on our ethics with that new technology. So I think weirdly, what has seemed like almost like a fanciful notion, like how would you speak to a whale has now is accelerating towards being like, a, a, a really reasonable goal. So I think we need to, I, I, I now want to change it from my job from being, hey guys, maybe we should do this to, hey guys, should we think twice before we do this and think about how we're going to do it right? Interesting. Okay, cool. So let's take another call and then and then we'll go from there. Hi, you're on Talking Animals with Tom Mustel. Yeah, uh, good show, guys. Hey, uh, I was wondering, is the Navy still experimenting uh, shooting the sonic booms out of Georgia there into the ocean? Because it's really screwing up the whales big time. And I just want to say that people should donate for the, to the Center for Coastal Studies because they work with the right whales and they do a lot of work. And these guys are heroes that go out and cut the uh, lines off the whales. And I'll just listen to your uh, 
comments. Thank you. Okay, thanks so much for your question. Tom, I don't know if that's uh, necessarily in your bailiwick, but you're welcome to answer in any way you'd like. Um, well, I, I did know that the sonic booms caused by some of the, uh, the aircraft and space aircraft flying uh, over like the seas has like which cause sonic booms can be enormously disturbing to all marine like many uh, like animals that live in the sea like whales and dolphins have especially acute hearing they're very sensitive hearers they can listen to frequencies below and above our own uh blue whale voices can travel across whole oceans 500 miles um and because they can't see very well in the sea uh, they really need to rely on being able to listen to one each other very well and so we saw this uh, during the pandemic. There was something called the anthropause when, because we were all locked down, uh, marine shipping dropped off massively. And the scientists studying this noticed that the whales were less stressed. They measured the stress hormones in their blood and that the whales were less stressed. And then they looked at the diversity of sounds they were making, the kind of their conversations and found they were having quite different and more complex conversations. And they've compared that to the difference between trying to talk to a friend in a nightclub when you sort of shout really straightforward things to the kind of like more complicated discussions you can have in a nice quiet room. So we know that our sounds really distress them. Um, there was a case in the US, and it went up to the Supreme Court, which is brought on behalf of cetaceans uh, against the Navy uh, because uh, the, 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 the volumes of sound that Navy sonar can create uh, are thought to, for some whales, deep diving whales like beak whales, for example, scare them so much that they swim fast to the surface and they get the bends and the nitrogen fizzes out of their blood and they can, they, wow. they can die really horribly uh, out of terror. Um, and in the UK, I, I don't know much about the US. I know there's a lot of litigation going on, a lot of concerned citizens groups like the one that the gentleman suggested. But in the UK, we also have this problem. Our naval bases are generally up in Scotland, in the north there. That's where our nuclear submarine fleet is located. Um, there's also a lot of like deep sea exploration. And that has been linked in some cases to dead big whales of many varieties washing up on beaches. Um, uh, we... Uh, so we, we know this. We know that when we make big, loud sounds in the sea, it can really disrupt and sometimes kill the, the animals that live there. And I think the real tragedy is that we could kind of change quite a lot of these. We've just been making these sounds because we can't hear them. You, you know, I think if we were making these sounds in the air and humans were aware of them, we'd have been protesting this for a lot longer. Mm. But because we haven't all got our heads underwater, we really don't understand. Like, I don't know, Duncan, if you've ever tried to record sound underwater. Um, I haven't, but I've heard like hydrophones and stuff when they are recording, and it's it's amazing like all the sound, even even beyond the sound, you're looking to record all the sounds that can be down there potentially at any given moment. So it's like a cacophony at uh, times, even. Yeah, it's it's really. I found it very shocking. I because I make films in air, like most humans, and yeah. so I normally I have to stop an interview if an aircraft flies over, and that can be disruptive. But in the sea, when I was recording underwater. I could record boats that I couldn't even see on the horizon. And it and it and that really brought home to me. And I thought, if I can do that with my really crude recording devices, with my quite limited human ears, what is it like if you rely on listening? Yeah, wow. All right, so we're going to get to another caller in just a moment, but we're nearing the end of our time and there's so many more things I want to address. So No, so the, let's keep going. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, one of the things that's so fascinating and thrilling in the book is the way you detail how science, like hard science, supported by 
really pretty wildly sophisticated technology is yielding these significant inroads in the field of animal communication. So talk a bit about, I don't know if it's Aza, that I say, Aza Raskin and Britt Selbatel, I probably mispronounced two or three of the four names. No, but, you uh, nailed it. That's, oh, okay, that's good. Right. But, uh, but their, their work within artificial intelligence and the communication of whales, uh, to me, is like, wow, that's exactly what's going to get us there probably, as you kind of noted in a different part of the conversation earlier, the importance of artificial intelligence to, to get a path of research more directly and efficiently than us mere brains uh, could, could really hope to do. I think well, what's really struck me is that Firstly, you know, like the whale breaching on me, how many mysteries there are in the sea. We know little, so little about the lives of whales and dolphins and other marine animals. And so the first thing, uh, but, but uh, we're living in a golden age of marine discovery because machines can go there for us. You know, we don't need to hold your breath if you're a robot. Uh, you can listen 24 hours a day for years if you're a hydrophone mounted on the seafloor. Um, uh, there are now like uh, self-propelling uh like autonomous vehicles that pilot themselves and avoid vessels across all of the uh, whole oceans listening for whales and dolphins the whole time so we're getting all of this data out of the ocean that we that we that uh, and we're happening like recording devices on the bodies of whales and dolphins themselves and so that's one really cool thing but the problem is if you're a human we've only got like one lifespan and <laughs> You can't just take it all in. You can't just sit there and listen to six years of the, a hydrophone in the seafloor. Um, and so, really, this is a, is a question. This is a case of machines and humans working together. Like we've all, we've always been reliant on machines to explore the sea. You know, with Jacques Cousteau and the invention of the aqualung, that suddenly made the underwater world much more accessible to us. Uh, and this is really an extension of that. So now we have all of this data coming out of the ocean, but we're kind of overwhelmed as humans. But at the same time, we've developed these uh, algorithms, these pattern finding uh, software devices. So I'll try and like really simplify this, but lots of the analysis techniques, which are machine learning, which is a branch of AI, deep learning especially, uh, have been developed to, for instance, to look at your uh, where you go every day on Google Maps and try and predict where you go might go next, or look at all the fa faces of everybody you know and sort them and your Facebook friends into identifiable individual, individuals. Or in the case of Google Translate, and this is the really exciting bit, natural language translation, Google Translate is able to translate from English to Greek to Urdu uh, without having a bilingual dictionary or being told any of the rules of those languages. But the way it does this is, you've, is that they feed huge corpuses, they're called huge volumes of spoken or written language into the software models. And then the AI finds patterns in those huge like uh, data sets that humans can't see. It sees like patterns in our languages that we don't really consciously know about and it maps the and it find when it finds similar patterns in other languages it's it, it sort of it is able to translate between them and that's really really exciting uh for trying to find patterns in animal communications because for ages we've been limited to just analyzing the most simple things that they say like an alarm call the most sort of short identifiable thing and then we often just play it back to the animal and see if it panics and then we say yes that's an alarm call or if a dolphin keeps making the same sound uh, uh 
the, the only one dolphin makes and the other dolphins around it makes, they, then we can say, yeah, that's a kind of dolphin name. That's a signature whistle. But this is like uh, a, a way of analyzing language from the top down and trying to map all of an animal's communication system and seeing what are the patterns within it. And then predicting based on taking large recordings, what if you have a language model, what would be said next if your language model is correct, which is how chatbots work. Um, and so, but obviously what these giant, these AIs, these great uh, analysis techniques require is lots and lots of data. So now we're seeing big expeditions being mounted. There's one in Dominica called Project SETI, which aims to have the first two-way conversation with a sperm whale by 2026. They are trying to record the biggest animal data, behavior data of all time. So they can feed it specifically into all these different algorithms that find different kinds of patterns within communications. And then the human linguists are going to use these to come up with theories of what they mean. And then they're going to test these by seeing what are, what the animals then said next to each other. And they're using like really cool tools for this. They're using soft robotics fish that swim among the whales. They're using drones that drop hydrophones onto them above and follow them from above. And they're rigging the entire sea so they can record all the conversations of the whales there and listen in for things like as a baby sperm whale learns how to speak, they can see it constructing it its communication system um and i just think this is wild personally wow. as a no biologist kidding. it's so oh exciting wow well a couple quick things we have just probably about a minute left i'm sorry to say uh tom but I quickly want to read an email that just came in uh, as you were just uh speaking just now it says absolutely fascinating interview this week with a truly brilliant and gifted guest he answered so many questions that i had really a great and eloquent speaker as well the gentleman is quite an inspiration well done Indeed, sir. So that's from Jeff in Tampa. Uh, oh, thanks, so, Jeff. <laughs> that's very encouraging. So, so with that goal that I, I have a feeling these people are going to realize of having that conversation with that whale in 2026, let me ask you, and I'm sorry to say we only have probably a minute or less because we're already a little bit over time, but if you could talk to your whale, and I think you know what I mean by when I say your whale, uh, <laughs> yes. if you could have a conversation with your whale, what would you say or what would you ask? I would say take me to the thing you think is most beautiful. Wow. I think I think, I think the most exciting element of this is that we are starting to understand that we live in a world that is perceived in totally different ways by the other living beings on it. And these technologies don't allow us to project our humanness onto other animals, but allow us to see ourselves and the world through other eyes. And that's what I'm most excited about. That's perfect. That's perfect answer and a great point at which you leave this conversation. Although I wish we could talk much longer, but we've been speaking with Tom Mustel. His new book is How to Speak Whale, A Voyage into the Future of Animal Communication. Wherever you get your books, you can get this one. And it's, as you probably suspected from the conversation, a fascinating book. And we, we only touched on a, a, just a small percentage <laughs> of the things that are covered in there. So there's plenty more in there. And his website to follow his kind of filmmaking work and other work is Tom Mustel, M-U-S-T-I-L-L.com. So it's Tom Mustel.com. Tom. Tom, thanks so much for joining us again on Talking Animals, and we'll, I'm sure, talk again soon about one thing or another, because I really enjoy speaking with you, and thanks so much. Likewise, Duncan. Thanks so much for having me on. Absolutely. Thank you. In a moment, I'll speak with Doug Keeling, recently named the 2023 Pet Sitter of the Year by Pet Sitters International. Keeling owns bad-to-the-bone pet care in Jacksonville, Florida. We'll discuss his company and the award in a brief conversation coming up in just mere moments. Right now, that we're going to step into the comedy corner. This is Jim Gaffigan with a must-play piece after our conversation with Tom Mustel. This is Wales 
in today's Comedy Corner on Talking Animals on WMNF. I've been trying to swim a lot, you know. You always hear swimming's the best exercise, but have you seen how fat whales are? <laughs> whales, they're like swimming all the time. <laughs> it's not working, whales. Not working. Whales always kind of sound depressed, don't they? Rejected by eHarmony. My Facebook friends forgot my birthday. Why am I so bad at hide and seek? Fish always find me. Wouldn't it be great if we found out whales were in complete denial about how huge they are? It's mostly water weight. A lot of water weight. <laughs> Once after a show, someone came up to me and they're like, you know, whales aren't fat, they have a layer of blubber. I thought calling myself Big Bone was a cop-out. <laughs> blubber, that's like the opposite of muscle. It goes like muscular, tone, flabby, and then like a mile away is blubber. <laughs> fat made a noise, would be blubber. Damn you, Plankton, you don't even taste good. Plankton, that can't be that high in calories. That's got to be frustrating for some whales. All they eat is plankton. I only eat plankton. You know, the fish are like, and cupcakes. <laughs> Just plankton sprinkled on pizza. It's mostly water weight. That was Jim Gaffigan. In today's comedy corner with a piece called Whales, taken from his album, Mr. Universe. Now it's time to speak with Doug Keeling, who earlier this month was named the 2023 Pet Sitter of the Year by Pet Sitters International. We'll hear about his Jacksonville, Florida-based business, Bad to the Bone Pet Care. And this award, this is Doug Keeling on Talking Animals on WMNF. Good morning, Doug. Good morning. Thanks for joining us on Talking Animals. Thank you so much for having me. I'm and con- excited. It's my first time on the radio. Okay, well, cool. Well, you know, con- first of all, congratulations on the award, which we'll come back to in a moment. But let's first just find out a couple of basic things about you and your, uh, and your business. How did you get into pet sitting and pet walking in the first place? Oh, yeah. So back in 2013, I moved to Jacksonville, Florida to go to the University of North Florida. And uh, I just really missed my childhood dogs. Skip. He was a Jack Russell, and he was my best friend growing up. And uh, I just started pet sitting and dog walking to be around animals because I missed him. And one thing led to another, and my roster was full within just a few months. And I made my first hire at month 11. And here we are almost nine years later. And I, I tell everyone it's been a dream come true for a dream that I didn't even know that I had. <laughs> wow, that's great. So what was it like, Bad to the Bone Pet Care, what was it like in the beginning of those years ago as opposed to how, how it works now? What are some of the main differences that, that I'm sure you've seen over those years? Oh, yeah. You know, I, I tell everyone that I've learned everything that I know the hard way. <laughs> I, I didn't know anything about running a business or growing a business when I first started. And it was a lot of trial and error as far as uh, – marketing and finding clients and the best way to interact with the clients. And then I had to really learn a lot about uh, animal behavior and uh, just the overall health and well-being of animals. And uh, 
you know, I, I'm constantly learning, and that's something that I, I really am and, uh, an avid supporter of is just continuing education for anyone in the pet world. You know, there's, we're learning so much uh, all of the time, and we have to be implementing these, these lessons into our businesses for, for the well-being of all the animals that we take care of. So as you've learned in kind of trial and error, what services maybe that you didn't offer at the beginning do you now offer as part of Bad to the Bone? Yeah, so now our, our main service is midday dog walk, and then we offer drop-in visits that are fully customizable uh, between 30, 45, and 60 minutes. Uh, and we take care of all animals. We also do overnight care for more needy pets, and we do what we call a live-in care, which is where we actually live in your home as if it's our own and and take care of your babies as if they are our own, you know. And uh, we also do a a local pet taxi service that operates kind of like a pet Uber. So if your your pet needs to go to the vet or the groomer and you have a busy day at work, we can take them there for you and bring them back home. And then uh, I also offer um, specialty traveling pet care all over the world. I just got back from uh, taking care of two collie mixes in Germany last week, actually. Wow. And, uh, yeah, it's, uh, like I said, it's been a dream come true for a dream that I didn't even know that I had. And I, I definitely didn't think that any of this would be possible just a few years ago. And, and uh, man, I'm, I'm just loving it. Uh, life is good. <laughs> That's fantastic. So um, it's truly a global, or uh, since you was named by Pet Sitters International, I guess that fits in with being just recently in Germany and other countries. But um, as far as people that work with you at, at uh, Bad to the Bone, what kind of uh, requirements are there? I'm sure probably licensed and insured, those kind of things. Or what, what do you ask for people that do join the uh, Bad to the Bone staff? Oh, yeah. We do a very extensive hiring process. I, uh, I, I have an application on our website, and we are actively hiring uh, now if anyone is interested. And uh, after you apply on the website, we do a Zoom interview, and then we do an in-person interview. And then uh, we have a full training course that we take you through going through uh, everything about animal body language and bite prevention. We do pet CPR and first aid training. Uh, we teach you how to take good photos, how to write a good update to your client, all of that. And then uh, everybody on my team passes a full federal background check. We are fully licensed, bonded, and insured. And of course, uh, proud members of Pet Sitters International and the National Association of Professional Pet Sitters. Uh, and we, we are employee-based. We were independent contractor-based for the first few years and and uh, finally made the switch to full employees, and, and it's been great. It's been wow. great. That sounds sounds impressive. It sounds like if somebody uh, passes through those interviews and the training, whatever, the clients can feel like their animals are in darn good hands, it sounds like. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's, that's what we hope for. For sure. <laughs> well, we're just nearing the end of our time, uh, Doug, but well, about the award, what can you tell me about uh, how it feels to be named 2023 Pet Sitter of the Year? Oh, it is, it's such an honor. It is truly a, a dream come true for me, and... Uh, I've been a, a proud member of Pet Sitters International for many years, and I started writing for their magazine, uh, Pet Sitter World, about a year ago. And, uh, man, I, I never thought that I would be named Pet Sitter of the Year. It's, 
it's uh, feels surreal. It feels wow. surreal. Well, congratulations. Again, we've been speaking with Doug Keeling, and his company is Bad to the Bone Pet Care. And, in fact, the website to find out more is Bad to the Bone Pet Care. But some of your uh, service area extends into to eastern Tampa, so it's not like you're that remote in case people are looking around so they can check out your website to find out more. Thank you so much, and congratulations again about the great award. That's fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right, we have just about reached the end of today's edition of Talking Animals on WMNF Tampa. Again, Glenn Hatchell doing Ask the Trainer next week. Get your questions ready. Meanwhile, Scott Elliott's preparing his show coming up right after the NPR News headlines. Thanks so much.